Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, we are starting a new series this week that we're going to be in the next few weeks um, called Advantage, the Holy Spirit and You. And it's kind of a weird title. What does that mean, you think? Well, it comes from John 16, 7, something Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. He said that, speaking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus actually said, that He thought of the impact of the Holy Spirit coming in what we call new covenant power after His death and His resurrection. He thought so much of that, that the impact would be so great on the church and on the world and in your life, that it would be better that He, the very Son of God, go away, go back to the Father, so that the Spirit of God would come in this kind of power. It was better, He was saying, that if His physical body was to go away so that the Holy Spirit would come in this new covenant power. And we're going to be looking at that um, over the next several weeks at how God has given us His Spirit uh, in a special and unique way um, not meaning, as we'll see, that, that he's never been active, uh, in times past or at work in the lives of believers before, but in a, in a new way, in a fresh way, ever since Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And Jesus obviously had high expectations of what that would mean for his church and what that would mean for you if you're a believer this morning as a Christian. Let me ask you, do you feel it's to your advantage or to the church's advantage today that Jesus is not physically seated beside you in a chair today? You may have even thought before, I would live a lot more like those people in the New Testament did if I had Jesus and I could right here in front of me and I could see His miracles. And I had Him right here beside me teaching me like the, like Peter did and like Thomas did and like John did and James did. But Jesus says, you're better off now and the church is better off now than they were then. That's a pretty unique statement. By Jesus. People can, you know, really get off track when we start talking about the Holy Spirit. People get kind of weirded out by talking about the Holy Spirit. And we tend in a ditch on this side or a ditch on that side, we tend to either get obsessed with the Holy Spirit or to get stressed by the Holy Spirit. And on the obsessed side, everything becomes about the Holy Spirit to the point that many times we get more obsessed with His gifts and the good things the Holy Spirit can do to the point of we, we get distracted from God and more focused on His gifts. Or we forget that the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in this study, one of the key things He does is magnify and glorify Jesus. And we get so immersed and obsessed with teaching on the Holy Spirit, if we're not careful, that many times we just kind of... Jesus just becomes like some side item over here. Some sideshow. Then other people treat the Holy Spirit like some kind of sideshow. Or they treat Him like so that you get stressed out thinking about it, and when they think about the Holy Spirit, they think about some televangelist asking them for their money on TV and then putting their hands on people and everybody passing out. And they're like, I don't want that. And we get these weird cartoons in our mind of what, what, is it, what is the Holy Spirit and what does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit and who is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do. And it just kind of stresses us out and we either kind of get apathetic and just kind of like, I just don't, well, I just, you know, I'll just put that over here and won't even really think about that. What, what's the point? Or we get so, well, many times we begin to take experience and we take truth and we pit them against one another. And one group says you've got to have this experience, right? Christianity is experiential, and it is experiential. And we do that to the point sometimes it will exalt the experience even over the truth of what God's Word reveals to us. And in other groups will say, no, Christianity is all about the truth. And it's not about experience, it's about God's Word. And so 
We need truth and experience doesn't matter. And what we need to understand is we need an experience grounded in truth. And so experience and truth are not enemies, right? And so a biblical experience and biblical interaction with God will be grounded in God's Word. And we'll see Jesus points to that even in our verses this morning and as He talks about the Holy Spirit. And so it's okay to believe in experiential Christianity. It's okay to believe that you can know and experience God in a fresh and real way in this life. That is new. Hey, listen. We, we are involved in a supernatural, I don't like to use the word religion, but for lack of a better term, I'll use it in the best kind of way, religion. Uh, What we believe is supernatural. Uh, We believe that God is real, that God became a man and died on a cross, and on the cross that God's Son actually bore our sin while being sinless, bore our sin, and at the same time endured the wrath of God, the punishment coming down from God for our sin. We believe that He bodily and physically and literally raised from the dead, and we believe that He's coming back again one day. Now think about all that. That's all very supernatural. And so is it really too much of a stretch to think that God has sent His Holy Spirit and New Covenant power to empower and to work and to do things in the life of the church? Uh, If we don't like the supernatural, we're not going to like Christianity. It's a supernatural religion. So we need to be okay with that, need to understand that, that that this is uh, you can't really have God and not have the supernatural. He's not like us. And here's the thing. But I want us to understand over the course of this series, even today, is that you cannot, if you're Christian, you cannot live a victorious Christian life without the help of the Holy Spirit. You were never intended to, you were never meant to, and it's not possible. It's completely impossible for you to live a victorious Christian life apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen. It cannot happen. And it's a, and you're just not wired that way. I'm not wired that way. Apart from God's grace and apart from the help of God's Spirit, we are all massive failures just waiting to wreck our lives. And sometimes we do that anyway, right? And when we don't heed uh, His Spirit. And so this week, we're going to be in John 14 as we start this series. We're going to talk about the promise of His presence. The promise of the presence of God, the presence of the Spirit of God from John 14. We're going to really read all of 16 through 26 and really kind of camp out in verses 16 and 17 um, mostly um, this morning. And I want you to understand kind of the scene before we read the text. Um, John 13 through 17 is Jesus' last recording teaching in John before the cross. And so Jesus is preparing the disciples for His departure. His First of all, His death but then His resurrection and ascension where He is going to go back to the Father. So He's preparing them for that. So it's a very intense time, um, and what he's teaching is obviously very important. And in John 14, Jesus has been teaching about the fact that he's going away to prepare a place for his followers, followers, and he will come again and then take them to himself. And so he's going to prepare a place, but he's coming back for them, he's encouraging them, he's giving them peace, he's wanting them to realize that he's the way to the Father, he's, that, they, that they've made the right decision in following him, that they are walking with the way and the truth and the life. And so feel the weight of this, the general that they've went into battle with, that they've left careers behind for, that families and friends have turned on them because of, the one that has led them into battle is now going now. The war is about to get even tougher. And things are about to get even more difficult. And I'm about to leave. That's the weight of kind of what's going on in these chapters in John as Jesus is preparing them for His departure. It would be very 
even though he's been telling them for a while, for the disciples, this is a very emotional and kind of a shocking time. But he's promising them that he's going to send someone in his place. And so all I want you to see this morning, us to see, is the promise of this presence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this is a promise uh, that has been fulfilled and learn about a little bit about who he is and about what his presence means in your life today as we just kind of get the ball rolling on this series. And so look with me in John chapter 14, starting in verse 16. I'll read verse 15 just for good measure. It's not on the screen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, you and, and you and me, and I and you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot. Don't you love that he has to kind of, he wants to point that not, not the scumbag. Uh, Judas, not Iscariot. Wouldn't you hate it to have been another disciple named Judas? Um, that's just uh, bad, right? Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that kind of gets in, in, in over these next couple of weeks. We'll be kind of camping out around this little section of scripture this week and next week. Um, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit um, in the, in this teaching session with the disciples. And there's three kind of things I want us to talk about this morning about um, about the power of his, the promise of His presence. The first thing I want us we're going to learn about is His identity about who this Holy Spirit is. And then we're going to talk about His relationship with us as believers. And then we're going to talk about how do you receive the Holy Spirit. And so, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. He gives us His identity in this teaching. And now, now look, we could go all around the Scriptures this morning. We, the Holy Spirit is on in the Bible beginning in Genesis 1-2. So, I mean, there's a lot we could pull from. But in what Jesus is teaching here today, one of the key phrases He gives us is this phrase that I'm going to send you another helper. The, the Father is sending another helper. And the word helper in the Greek word is uh, parakletos. And it, it's the idea is one that, that the little root word there, kaleo, it means to call. And it's the idea of one, uh, it's rooted with the word that it has the idea of one being called alongside. Right? One being called along or appointed alongside. And this word in, in their day many times was used to speak of an advocate or a lawyer in a court of law. And it's translated different ways in our English language. We see here in the ESV and some other translations say helper, some say advocate, some say counselor, some say com uh, comforter. Um, in its original meaning, the word can, is a very rich word, but um, advocate and lawyer was very uh, very uh, a close kind of representation. And it speaks of Jesus in 1 John. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1 John, and he used it to describe Jesus over there. Uh, he says that... Um, 
He's a, Jesus is our um, our advocate, our helper, our Parakletos with the Father. And he, in other words, he represents us before God. The reason we can stand before God is because Jesus stands before God for us on our behalf. And it has the same meaning, uh, as, as I said, as that word that means one caught alongside or uh, to help or, or to be with. And so Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, and speaking of the Holy Spirit here, would be another helper, another advocate, another one to come alongside you. And the word another tells us something else about the Holy Spirit. The word another in the Greek speaks to um, another of the same kind. In other words, you could say another and you could mean two different things by it. In other words, I could use a word that means another of a totally different kind or another of the same kind. And so I could mean you had an apple and now I'm giving you a giraffe. Those two things are not related in any way whatsoever. But Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses a word that means another of the same kind. And here what he means is he is going to be like Jesus. Dr. John MacArthur points out that him being another like Jesus points to both his personal nature and his deity. And because he's like Jesus in his nature, he is a person, he has personhood. In other words, he um, you can relate to him. We're going to talk a little about that. And he is deity just as Jesus is deity. So first of all, think about the fact that he's a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Sometimes we say that. I hear people say that. Well, I could really spill the Holy Spirit. It was really moving today. That is just wrong. I know we mean well when we say things like that. We really got to get the pronouns right because we just robbed him of his personhood. He is a he, he, Jesus. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, we see, and we see in our English translation we have real personal pronouns like he, right? Because he is a person that can be related to. My car is an it. The Holy Spirit has a masculine pronoun used to describe Him. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He's not the force, right? Star Wars makes great entertainment and horrible theology, okay? So He's not the force that's just kind of moving throughout the world. He is He is the Holy Spirit. So how all do we know what this personhood thing? How all do we know and understand that? I mean, what if some of this is just coincidence and you can do this and that with the Greek and all that? Well, notice what Jesus says. He says, you know Him. Did you catch that throughout this back? You, you know Him. You know Him and He's with you and He's going to be in you. In other words, He's not a thing or a mysterious power. He's something you can know. You know, a guy can, a guy can have this car and, uh, that he just loves. That he, um, you know, that he's had for years and he finally tunes and maybe it's an antique and he can pull it out of the garage every Saturday and detail it and wash it even though he hasn't driven it 10 miles and you can put super duper crazy unleaded fuel into it and you can pump, uh, you can change the oil every 2,999.5 miles and, and you can take a toothbrush to the tires and you can know everything about that car. Uh, you can know because it's old that you have to do the radio a certain way to get it to land on that channel and you can know how it handles every curve and every bump and you can know more about that car than you should really know about anything, but you can't know the car. You can know about the car. And here's how you can't know the car, because the car can't know you. See what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit is not some thing that we just know about. You, you can know all about the Holy Spirit, but the truth of the Holy Spirit is, His identity is you can know Him, because He already knows you and knows about you. And so, this is someone that you can have a relationship with. You can't really have a relationship with a car. Or with an inanimate object. Jesus refers to him here as the spirit of truth. You know, things don't lie. Things don't tell the truth. Things do nothing 
Or they do what they're made to do. If you created a computer program, someone created a computer program to lie to people and to be able to steal things from them, you know what? The computer program's not lying. It's just doing what it's created to do. The liar is the one who put the computer program together. The one who utilizes the program. Things don't lie. Things don't tell the truth. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus is the truth and He says this Spirit is the Spirit of truth. In other words, He reveals and declares and makes known things that are true. There's no error in Him. He does and says only what is true. In a world full of error, in a world full of deception, in a world full of sin and darkness and lies, the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks and reveals truth in this world. It's amazing how much theological error and biblical error gets blamed on the Spirit of truth. People say something like this, I believe God's leading me to... And sometimes they'll fill in the blank with some heresy like God is leading me to... Leave my spouse for this other woman. And they'll say things like that. Some of you know people probably that have said stuff like that. And really what they're doing is they're blaming their decision on the Holy Spirit. You say, well, no, they just said God. Well, in Christian vernacular, God is leading me is code word. Just so you know, that's code word for the Holy Spirit is leading me to do this. That we, Those of us kind of on the inside, we know that. So when we say God's leading me, we're saying the Holy Spirit, because He's the one who leads us in this way in this life, is leading me. And so when someone says that, and then they fill it with something that's obviously in a path of error, in a path of sin, in a path of falsehood, and not in line with God's truth, there might be a Spirit leading them to do that, but it's not the Holy Spirit. There might be a God leading them to do that, but it's not the one true God. It's an idol and it's a false spirit and it's deception and it's their own error and their own sin. And a lot of times the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, gets blamed for all kinds of crazy things. Theological error and mishaps that He really had absolutely nothing to do with. It's innate in His identity as the Spirit of truth that He leads us in the truth. Other scriptures point to His personhood. And his identity at various points in the Bible, uh, as you read about the Holy Spirit, you read that he has intellect, a mind, a will, emotion, that he has power. He does things, he knows things, he says things. In verse 26 of this passage, Jesus says he teaches. The Bible even makes it clear in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, that you can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin. can grieve things. This is a person. And His personhood reveals to us that He can be known. That you can have a relationship with Him. That you can know Him more and more. That you can sin against Him. That you can be blessed by Him. And all this comes from Him being a person. Just as the Father and the Son are. But He's also God. He's not just any person. He's God. Because He's of the same nature, remember, as Jesus. He is another help. He's like Him. He's a Spirit of God. He's referred to as the Spirit of God many times throughout the Bible. You know, an interesting thing happens in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, two people, one named, it's a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira. You may be familiar with the story. They conspire to tell a lie to the church and make themselves look like they had done a more generous act than they had did. Everybody's given, selling their property and giving it away and like, and they're doing all this generous, all this, this crazy generosity is taking place and they want to look generous. And so they go and they sell their stuff, but they, they tell everybody that they're giving it all to God. But they're really, they've kept some back for themselves. And the problem is they're lying, right? And they're trying to deceive and they're being hypocritical and they're trying to look holier than they are and they're trying to look even more generous than they are and they're trying to put up this front. And in Acts 5.3, Peter confronts Ananias and he says, 
Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So he says you can lie to him. He says you're lying. You're not just lying to me. You're not just lying. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4 he says this, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. You know, the very first time the Holy Spirit is spoken of in the Bible is Genesis 1-2. Very beginning. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was present and active in creation. He has always been. He is powerful. He is holy. He is eternal God. He's not lesser than God. He's not some sidekick. He's God. And this is the idea expressed in the doctrine of the Trinity. We have to talk about that a little bit to kind of understand all this. We believe there is one God, and we believe there is Father, There is the Son, Jesus Christ, and there is the Holy Spirit. And we believe that all three are God. And we believe there's only one God. You say, you sound like you're talking in circles. That's what we believe. That's Christianity. That's been Christianity for 2,000 years. Any departure from that is no longer Christianity. It's something else. And so he says, so the Trinity teaches there's one God. Well, I thought there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are. But I thought they were all three God. They are. I thought there was one God. Now you get it. Now you get it. Now here's the thing. We tend to do this. We mean well. And we say, it's kind of like an ice cube. And we begin and we get into the... It's kind of like an egg. Can I just... Let me just say something. Please, throw all those illustrations in your trash can and never pull them back out again. (laughs) Because none of them, they're all flawed. You say, why, why are they all flawed? Because you can't convey the majesty and the beauty and the unity and at the same time the unity and the separate and all the stuff that goes on in the Trinity with a stinking eggshell and an egg or a cube of ice bowling in water with vapor coming out or whatever crazy thing that we've all contrived before in our minds. It's okay to just kind of go, he's bigger than that. It's okay to go, I can't fully wrap my mind around that. It's okay to go, you know what? It, it just, He is what He is, and He is God, and He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I can't draw that up for you perfectly, and I can't illustrate that for you perfectly, but that doesn't make it less so. doesn't make it less so. Let's not make God smaller so that we can understand Him better. Let's ask God to grow us and to mature us and to realize that you're going to spend all of eternity learning and growing and understanding the Trinity and all these things. God is vast and God is big and God is great and it's going to take all of eternity forever and ever and ever to continue to know and learn and grow about Him. So we don't have to have everything wrapped up in a visual this morning. So just kind of, you know, just take a deep breath and let's not stress about that. He's not less than the Father. He's not less than the Son. He's God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. No less God than they are. Now, His personhood and His deity means we can know Him, and it means also that you and me should obey Him. Jesus said to the disciples that He would teach them all things and bring to remembrance the things Jesus said. He said there at the end of our passage this morning. And He did that when they wrote the New Testament. He brought to remembrance the things they needed to record the Gospels and things like that. And He continues to teach us today by helping us to understand and apply what He has inspired inspired in the Word of God. And when the Holy Spirit reveals a place in your life, when you're reading the Word of God or hearing it preached or sung about or whatever, that you need to apply God's Word, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit and you need to obey the Holy Spirit. Because to disobey God is sin and the Holy Spirit is God. So we shouldn't grieve Him, cause Him grief by disobeying Him. We shouldn't quench Him by not listening to Him when He's trying to reveal truth to us. We should obey Him. 
Because if you want to walk in step with the Spirit of truth, you have to walk in the truth. And the Spirit of truth will always lead you to walk in the truth of God's Word. So, now we know a little bit about His identity. Secondly, I want us to understand how He relates with us this morning. Jesus says this, You know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. That's an amazing statement by Jesus. This is the presence of God, and Jesus uses Greek word, three Greek words here in this whole pat, really in all of this section here in John 14, that the Holy Spirit is with us, the Holy Spirit is by us, and the Holy Spirit is in us. He is just conveying this unique relationship believers have with the Holy Spirit. And this does not mean that the Holy Spirit did not exist before when He tells them, He's with you and He'll be in you. It doesn't mean that He wasn't active in the lives of believers before this time. The Old Testament is riddled with examples of the work of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit using people and working in them through their lives. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit would come in a new and more powerful way than ever. And we call this Him coming in new covenant power as the new covenant is enacted by the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. After Jesus' death and resurrection, because Jesus would be going to the Father, He was promising a more powerful, intimate relationship with God's Spirit than God's people have ever had in the past. That's always been the promise. This wasn't something new that Jesus just came up with. You know, like, I'm just going to pull this out of my rabbi hat over here and give you a new teaching that you've never heard before. This is all the way back in Ezekiel. This was the promise of the new covenant. When the Messiah would come, Ezekiel 36, 26-27 says, I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you. That there is talking about your spirit. But then he says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is something out in the future that God is promising that He's going to do for His people. That He's going to so, in a unique way, pour out His Spirit and place His Spirit within them in such a unique and fresh and new way that they would walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. Jesus is saying that this new covenant promise from Ezekiel is about to be enacted. The Spirit is about to come in power. And this is what Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 prophesied about. That there would be this time where the Spirit would come in power. And then it happens in Acts chapter 2. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, He told the disciples, disciples, you wait, right? And if the Spirit will come and you will receive power then to be my witnesses. And then Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 happens. It says when the, Luke records, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is what we call Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a new and more powerful way than He had ever come before. Now, we don't experience Pentecost over and over again. It was a one-time event in the history of the church, and we don't need another Pentecost because He came and He stayed. Okay? And so, yes, it was unique, and it's like this weird experience, and people are like, are these people, are, are they drunk? What's going on? I mean, just because it's just, it just coldly, He comes in and He just invades the place and invades the people, and He begins to fill the people, and people are hearing these different languages and all this stuff's going on. We read it, and we're like, what in the world's going on here? I've never seen that happen at church. It's because it happened one time, and it happened 2,000 years ago. 
That doesn't mean we don't have unique and, 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 and experiences with the Holy Spirit in our life now. It just means you don't get Pentecost again. And we don't need Pentecost again. Now, what they experienced in a unique and special way at Pentecost, it's normative in our lives. The moment we believe, the Spirit comes into our lives. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a promise for every single believer. Romans 8, 9. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Every believer. So I don't have the Holy Spirit. You do, or you're not a believer. You do, or you're not a believer. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own? This is basic, very basic New Testament teaching. So if you're a follower of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit is with you and in you. This is a promise a very unique, of a very unique and powerful relationship with God for every believer in the Christian community. But Jesus goes on in verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now this is likely a reference to the resurrection of Christ. He wanted them to know that He wasn't going to stay dead, but He's going to come back. But I believe there could be some double meaning here pointing also to Pentecost. Okay, So it's never been Jesus' intention, though, is the point that His people go at the Christian life alone. It's not God's plan. That's why He gives you the Holy Spirit. You can't and won't live the Christian life alone. And then in verses 19-24, through Jesus goes into more detail about the relationship not only with the Spirit, but with the Father and with the Son that we have. In verse 20, He says, I am in the Father, you in Me, and I in you. Then after explaining how keeping the commandments of Jesus shows our love for Jesus, He says in verse 23, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with Him. So God the Father and God the Son make their home with you as well. The reality of conversion of the believer is that God Himself takes up residence in your life. That's an amazing truth. The beauty of the triune God at work in your life, in our little feeble lives. In these jars of clay, the Spirit of God brings this type of reality into our life when we come to know Jesus. Now, God's Spirit has always been at work in the world, as we've seen ever since Genesis 1-2 we see this. But since Pentecost, He's been at work in a new and more powerful way. And the same Holy Spirit that John and Peter and Paul and Andrew and Matthew and Luke and Barnabas and Timothy and all those people that we read about in the New Testament had, you have, if you're a believer. Look at the disciples pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. Before Pentecost, they are timid. They are slow to catch on. They are falling asleep and then when Jesus wants them to pray. And then they're running away when Jesus is arrested. Look at Peter. He, at one point, Jesus tells him that he needs to go and die on the cross and Peter says, and Peter rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus. That's not a good, if you're new to Christianity, step one, never rebuke Jesus, okay? And so Peter, he hadn't learned that yet. He hadn't, he hadn't been to the one-on-one class and got that one down yet. And so he rebukes Jesus. Not only that, Peter denies Jesus three times after saying he would die for him. Three times he's given opportunity just to say he knew who he was. Just to say he had any relationship with you. And Peter says, I don't know him, and begins to call curses down from God on him. That's Peter before Pentecost. Peter's the guy that loses his temper and cuts a guy's ear off when they're coming to take Jesus. We can kind of sympathize with him there, right? 
But he's sticking his foot in his mouth all the time. He's, I mean, he's this well-meaning guy that finds himself rebuking Jesus one moment and denying Jesus the next after promising to die for him. And then after Pentecost, you read the book of Acts and the disciples are no longer timid and running away from death threats. They are bold and they are preaching and they're being beaten. And most of them are dying martyrs' deaths. And Peter in particular is bold. The last time we see him, Jesus is having to restore him so the other disciples think it's okay to still let him hang out with them and be a leader in the group. And Jesus is restoring him. And then we pick up an axe and he stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches a sermon and 3,000 people get saved. Everything's What happened? What changed? Two Only two things have changed. Jesus rose from the dead and they saw Him and the Spirit of God came in new covenant power into their lives and it changed everything. Let me ask you, can it be possible that the Spirit of the living God would indwell a believer and it makes zero difference in our lives? What if I came in this morning and I told you, you know what? For the last six months, Last year, you didn't know this, but I've been training one-on-one with the world's number one golfer, and I don't even remember who that is now. He's moved in, actually. He's moved into a spare room, and and every morning we get up, and I go through his regimen with him, and we go out and we hit golf balls, and and man, we're training together, and he's teaching me everything, and we're we're watching videos, and he's swing coaching me, and you'd say, has your handicap improved? Have you gotten any? Have you shaved any strokes off? No, not really. Has it really made any difference whatsoever? You'd probably go, well, I kind of think you might be lying. Either, either, either you're lying to me about this, or you're just so pathetically unathletic that the world's number one golfer can't even help you get better. You would begin to maybe call my bluff. My point's simple. Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would indwell, that He would come in a new and fresh and powerful way in the life of the believer. And shouldn't that make a difference in the way we live? Can you say this indwelling, this new and powerful relationship with the Spirit of God, can you say that it is real in your life if there is zero impact on your living, your thinking, your attitude, your actions? If you would call my bluff on the golfer, Shouldn't you be willing to call your own bluff on claiming the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in your life if there has been zero change? One of the reasons He came at Pentecost is to help us to live out the Christian life. It doesn't mean, listen, yeah, we can resist Him and we can disobey Him. Absolutely, we can do those things. And that's why we still do sin is because we do those things. We refuse to yield full control over to Him. That's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's one thing to hinder the Spirit's work in your life. It's another thing for the Spirit's work to be absent from your life. Those are two different things, long ways apart. And that's what concerns me is that our churches are full of people There's no fruit of the Spirit whatsoever. And it's like the Holy Spirit has given life to a dead tree. And we wonder why in the world, how can that, how can it be possible that that person be a Christian and there's there's no fruit? There's no fruit. And it's real simple. Jesus never told us those people were Christians. You know what confirms to us that we're Christians according to the Bible? The Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. And I can promise you one of the ways He will do that is your life will bear fruit. Will bear fruit. We're saved only by grace through faith and that not of ourselves and resting in death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if we don't bear any fruit and there's never any life change, we've got every reason to question whether our faith is a sham and a falsehood and a head knowledge with zero heart knowledge. We have every reason to question that. 
Other people can't judge that. I can't. Only God can judge that. But we should test ourselves to know ourselves. One of the reasons He came at Pentecost, believer, is to help us live out the Christian life. In verse 15, the verse we kind of read quickly at the beginning, Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And then He goes into teaching on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send a helper. So it almost seems kind of odd. You're kind of like, why are you talking about the Holy Spirit? Now, you were just talking about if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Because these things are connected because it's the Holy Spirit that helps you keep the commandments. And that's in unison with what God said in Ezekiel when He said, I'm going to put My Spirit within you and He's going to cause you to walk in My statutes. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us to obey. It's Holy Spirit that makes obedience to the Word of God possible. Yeah, we resist Him at times. Yeah, we grieve Him. Yeah, we we push Him away and we get away. But shouldn't our lives be characterized by a new desire and a new direction towards obeying God? Shouldn't we see some spiritual growth in our life? Shouldn't we see some things? It's one thing to have the Spirit's work hindered. It's another thing, like I said, to have it absent. Now, remember, the Spirit is another helper, which means He's like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? He taught the disciples. He equipped the disciples. He encouraged the disciples. He rebuked the disciples at times. He trained the disciples. And now the Spirit does all this in our lives. And He also empowers us to live out the Christian life. The Spirit empowered Jesus in His ministry. Did you know that? That Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit in His ministry? The same Holy Spirit at work in the life of Jesus is at work in your life if you're a believer today? The point is, our relationship with the Spirit is transformative. Some of you have friends and family members or long-time friends that you've met that you would say your life has been a spouse, whatever, that your life has been forever changed since you met that person. Shouldn't the same thing be said of when the Holy Spirit came into our lives in a fresh and new way? If you're a believer this morning, do you realize the gift you've received in the Holy Spirit? A transformative relationship? This means you have no idea what God is capable of doing in and through your life. You have no idea. We have no idea what God is capable of doing in us and through us because it's not really about us. It's about the fact of His Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It means we can no longer make excuses about our sin patterns and about the habits that we refuse to repent of and the things that we refuse to change and, and, and the attitudes that we refuse to get rid of and all these things we refuse to take control of. We no longer have excuses because God's presence is within us. They, they, God has given us His Holy Spirit. We don't have an excuse anymore. Well, my past, well this, you don't understand my situation. All I understand is if you're a believer, the Spirit of every resource you need has been given to you in the person of God Himself in the Holy Spirit. Believer, are you living like someone today who has the Spirit of God? Do you treat your body like His temple? Do you live a daily dependent life on his, in His power? Do you yield to His leading? Do you seek to know Him? And do you seek to obey His Word? Now, some people think, we get confused on this, and we think, well, maybe I'm a believer. Maybe I just haven't really received this Holy Spirit. Now, I want to talk to you just briefly about how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, notice Jesus says, He is whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. Jesus says the world cannot receive Him. This means He must be received. In other words, the special or unique relationship with the Holy Spirit is not by osmosis. The world cannot receive Him and know Him because it cannot receive Him because it does not know Him or see Him. In other words, the world doesn't have the Spirit because the world, which here includes all those who are without Christ, without a relationship with Christ, is full of sin and full of darkness. He's the Spirit of truth. 
Apart from Christ, we've all went the way of sin and error and not truth. And this is the spirit of truth, not the spirit of sin, not the spirit of error. And we have to understand He must be received in our lives because the Spirit is not your conscience. You are given the Holy Spirit at birth. He's not your conscience. That's you. That's you. He's God. He's not you. We all have a conscience because we're made in the image of God. You say, well, I think I have the Holy Spirit because I feel bad when I do things that are wrong. And I feel right when I do things that are good. That doesn't mean you have the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily a Christian. doesn't mean you're not. It just means that you're likely not a psychopath. Um, listen, I feel bad when I do things. This is not a, look, I'm a Christian. No, it means you're likely to never be a serial killer. Okay? It means that you are made in the image of God and your conscience is not so seared that when you do horrible things, that you feel bad. We need to understand that we don't need to set the bar so low for the Holy Spirit that we relate, we relegate His activity to making us not do horrible things. No, so He's so much more than that. He's not our conscience. This is God who has taken up residence in you. In you. Don't take the Holy Spirit of Acts, the Spirit that empowered Jesus and Paul and others and relegate Him to restraining your activities merely. The Bible's very clear. Believers have the Spirit of God. Unbelievers do not have the Spirit of God. So the question is, how do you receive the Holy Spirit of God? Well, Jesus told us this in John 7.37, one of the first places in John that He begins to teach on the Holy Spirit. In John 7.37-39, Jesus says this. John writes, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John commentates and tells us, Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, had not been given a new covenant power. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? You believe in Jesus. By faith in Christ. You mean I don't have to have a special service where people lay hands on me? And you, 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 you mean I don't have to, have to pray some special prayer and ask to receive the Holy Spirit? I mean the moment you genuinely repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, that it is a promise in God's Word that the Spirit of God indwells you and seals you unto the day of, unto the day of salvation. You say, how do you know that? Well, for one thing, the Bible tells me that. But in other places, you know, the Bible actually says He's the down payment. He's the down payment. He's the down payment of your future glory. If there's no down payment, there's no future glory. You get the Holy Spirit. He, this new covenant experience with the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. Now we'll talk in the weeks to come about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not Him coming into your life for the first time. That's yielding control of your life to Him. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But for right now, just understand, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit of God residing, indwelling in your life. And if you do not know Christ, you do not have the Spirit of God. You may experience Him through the lives of other believers around you and through the church and His work advancing the gospel throughout the world and making disciples. But you personally will not receive Him apart from genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, have you ever bought something like a toy for your kid and got it home and then realized it didn't have batteries? 
Those are the worst toys. I mean, it can be a great looking toy and you're in the store and you buy that for Christmas or whatever, but, and then you find it and you have to go buy like five screwdrivers to find the screwdriver that will actually get that particular battery in that, you know, so you can get, because it, the way they build these things, right? So the kids can't get into them and all that. So the first thing you're looking for when you buy a new toy, should be, does it come with battery? Are the batteries included? And when they die, can I just throw it away? Or can this, like, can I get to it easily? Because there's nothing worse than a toy without batteries. Without batteries, the toy can never be what it was made to be at the toy shop. And God has made every human being to worship Him and to know Him and to love Him and to enjoy Him forever. But we have broken His law. We have rebelled against Him. We have created idols. But Jesus has come to restore a right and good relationship with God. He has died for our sin. He has lived the righteous life. He has bared our sin in His body. He has taken God's wrath. And He has risen from the dead. And when we trust Him and Him alone to save us, the relationship with God is restored. We're forgiven. We're made into brand new people, given brand new life in a brand new sphere in Christ. And the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your life to make you into the person God wants you to be. Someone more and more and more progressively like His Son, Jesus. And that can't happen without the Spirit of God. And you can't have the Spirit of God without faith in Jesus. Without faith in Jesus, there's no indwelling work of the Spirit. We're walking around without batteries. We can't do what we're created to do. We can't do what we're made to do because we're made to do it with God's Spirit residing, God's Spirit empowering, God's Spirit indwelling. And that only happens when we believe in and really genuinely trust in Jesus. So two questions this morning. Number one, do you have the Spirit? The Holy Spirit. Is there evidence in your life that God has radically entered your life and that you have a relationship with Him unlike the rest of the world? Are you, have you truly trusted Christ? Are you a believer? Do you just have head knowledge or do you have heart knowledge of the Gospel of what Christ has done for you? Have you rested in Him? And believer this morning, are you living your life yielded to the Spirit of God? Are you living like... Your body is His temple. Do you use your body and your mind and your time for the glory of God? Are you seeking to know and obey the Bible and the Spirit of God that the Spirit of God has inspired? Are you living like someone with new covenant power of the Holy Spirit residing in your life? Or are you resisting His work? Are you grieving Him? Today's the day to repent. Today's the day to ask God to help you live in cooperation with, not resistance of, His Spirit. Maybe today you need a fresh touch from the Spirit of God in your life. Maybe you feel dry. Maybe you feel powerless. Maybe you feel like just your, the wood's wet, so to speak, right? There's no fire. And maybe this morning where you sit, you need to build a little altar and you need to ask God to send down the fire to reignite your life, to, to reinvigorate you by the power of His Holy Spirit. I would invite you to ask Him to do that today. We can't live a victorious Christian life without the Holy Spirit. But the good news is, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And you can live a victorious Christian life. And if you're not a Christian today, the good news is, if you'll put your faith in Jesus, wow, everything changes.